0: Please open your Bible to the book of James, the book of James. This morning, we are going to take a short break from our series in Proverbs to start a second series that's going to run alongside our current series. And if you're having trouble finding the book of James, it's a smaller book right after Hebrews. So it's right towards the back of your Bible. If you get to Peter, 1st or 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Revelation, you've gone too far. Go back. But it's right in between Hebrews and 1st Peter. And over the next several months, uh, while John and I continue to work our way through Proverbs, John's going to be preaching next week from Proverbs 10, Lord willing. Uh, I've asked Feng Yu and Chris to lead us through this wonderful letter that has been called the Proverbs of the New Testament. That it seemed to be a fitting complement to where God is focusing our attention right now, and that is on this topic of of wisdom, of wisdom. You see, we live in really bewildering times. Uh, This past week, I heard somebody say that, that people around us often, they don't know left from right, up from down, good from bad, boy from girl. I mean, it's confusion everywhere. But when we come to the Bible... When we listen to and receive the words of God as he gives them to us, we are given lenses to see clearly how we are to live in the world. Now, I know some of you have terrible eyesight without aid, without glasses or contacts. I am legally blind in one eye, and if I don't have a contact in that eye, it's just everything out of that eye is just blurry. Some of you have eyesight that's so terrible that you wouldn't recognize your spouse if they were to walk in the room. This is how we are apart from the vision that God's Word gives us. We stumble along in darkness, but His Word is a lamp to our feet. It's a light unto our paths. So we need to know well this light. We need to get familiar with these lenses so that we might walk in the paths of life. And as we studied over the past several weeks, Proverbs 1 through 9, it's, it's imploring us, calling on us to, to get wisdom, to listen to wisdom, to walk in the paths of of wisdom. Walk in the goodness, the blessing of living life according to God's ways. And this letter of James, like the book of Proverbs, is a book about wisdom. James' concern is to help us to live in harmony with God's will in today's world. That's what we all want to do. We want to walk according to God's will. And as we embark on this new series, I thought it'd be helpful to take some time to help us maybe get our bearings a little bit in this book. And we're going to do that as I answer just three simple questions. We're going to answer, who is James? Who is James writing to? And third, what is James writing about? That's how we're going to navigate our text and and this sermon today. And for the answer to these first two questions, we're going to look together at, at the text that we have for today. It's a short text. It's a simple text. But even as we read these few words, don't forget that these words are God's words to us and for us. These words, they're not accidental or incidental to God's purposes. They are a part of God's purposes. These are intentional words, meaningful words, beneficial words for us today. So we're going to read, if you're there, uh, from James chapter 1, and give our attention to verse 1. This is the Word of God. Listen as I read. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. This is God's word. Like I said, it's a, a simple text, it's a straightforward text, but there is much for us here. And before we dig into it, would you pray with me? Father, we are helpless to know you and to hear from you and to receive from you apart from your spirit. So spirit, would you open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things out of, of your word? Would you give me the strength and, and clarity to, to hold out the goodness of your ways and the goodness of your gospel to us this morning? Thank you for your grace and thank you for your faithfulness to your promises We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to ask our text a couple questions. The first question is this. Who is James? Who is James? Now, if someone's to present you with this question, who are you, how would you respond? Think about that for a second. So who, who are you? What things come to mind? Of all the things that you could tell someone about yourself, what would you say? Perhaps you'd talk about your interests. If if it hasn't become apparent already I like food So maybe I might start talking about food And my relationship to food And the things that I like to cook And the the ribs that I smoked last night That were so good (laughs) Might tell you about that Maybe you would talk about Your accomplishments Things you've done If you talk to anyone Who's run an ultramarathon before They might tell you pretty quickly What they've done And how far they ran I don't know any of those people though but oftentimes, we also speak of ourselves to others through terms of association. So we speak of those we know, or those that we're related to. I was, as I was thinking about this this morning, I was surprised about how early on I picked up this skill, if you want to call it a skill in life. I remember being around seven years old, and I had the opportunity through a friend to meet Michael Jordan, and I mean that was, meant the world to me at that age. And I would imagine that over the next year or two, everybody that I met that I thought would be remotely interested in this fact probably heard about it within two minutes of meeting me. Oh, yeah, I met Michael Jordan. Like, that was central to who I was, even though it was, a, I mean, a kind of a passing interaction. But that's where there was significance for me. I think we all have that, those temptations. So our interests, our accomplishments, our relationships. When we come to James's introduction of himself, there are a few places that he could have started with. Now, for one, James could have spoken about what he had done. Uh, Paul, in Galatians 1, he refers to James as an apostle. James played a pivotal role in the early church, and this becomes clear in Acts as we make our way through Acts in Acts 15. And you, remember, you may remember in Acts 15 how the early Christians, they were experiencing conflict, and the conflict stemmed from uh, this idea that that. Gentile Christians were being required to be circumcised. That was the only way that you could be a Christian, be circumcised. And so there was conflict over whether or not that was the case. And so the leaders of the early church, they all gathered in Jerusalem, and they had a council to sort things out. And so it was was kind of a who's who of the early church that gathered there in Jerusalem. And so Peter was there, and Paul and Barnabas were there. And do you know who gave kind of the closing argument of that council? this James. This James was there. But that's not all we know about this James. Sure, James could have talked about what he had done and the important role that he played in establishing the church. But he also could have told us about his associations. Do you know who James's parents were? They went by the names, you may have heard of them, Joseph and Mary. Yeah, like that Joseph and Mary. Mary, the mother of Jesus, Joseph and Mary. This James is the brother of Jesus himself. And that's kind of like a, a mic drop association. It's kind of like, well, I met Michael Jordan. Well, I'm the brother of Jesus. It's kind of, uh, there's a, a comedy sketch that I've seen before, and it's, it's, everybody's trying to kind of one-up e- each other. It's like, me, me, you. I mean, you, you, me, me. And so this guy was saying, I would love if I had landed on the moon, if I'd walked on the moon, if I was one of the 12 people in human history that walked on the moon, and so I could let somebody just go off, yeah, I did this, and I did this, and all this, well, I walked on the moon, and I mean, it's done. You can one-up everyone. James has that, as the brother of Jesus. I mean, what person associated with Christianity could ever up that? No one. But that's not where James starts. That's not even how he thinks of himself. Instead, he uses just one word to define who he is. He gives us his name, James, and what does he say? A servant. James, a servant. That's it. This word can also be translated slave. It means that he is he's owned by and completely under the authority of another. He's not his own man. He's someone else's man. He doesn't write as someone who has some standing on his own. That's not His conception of self is not wrapped up in himself. He is entirely subject to someone else. But I don't want us to get the wrong idea when we think about this idea of slave or servant. The title of a servant is not necessarily demeaning or degrading when James brings it up. And it's because of what comes next. James says, James, a servant of God. Now this is a title of, of honor. If you were my servant, or, or you had a servant, that would be a put down. It would be kind of degrading, demeaning. But to be the servant of the creator of the universe, the sovereign over all, is another matter entirely. It's a title of honor. It's a title used of Moses and David. And in the New Testament, Paul and Peter they use this title of themselves. To be a servant of God is a remarkable thing. The reason James writes the authority that he has doesn't come from anything that he has done. Doesn't come from who he is related to biologically. His authority comes from the fact that he is a servant of God. And so he writes. But James doesn't stop there. He adds to this introduction uh, a second phrase so he is a servant of god which would have been a a well-known kind of common phrase at the time but it's not just that he is a servant of god and of the lord jesus christ now we read this and I mean, we just go right through it and move on to the next thing but this is unusual and surprising this is actually the the only place in the new testament where this phrase is appears in this way. And what's surprising about this phrase is in what it says about James's brother. Remember, this, this brother is, is the one that James would have grown up with. Like they probably shared a room together. They worked together. They played together. They ate together. All very human things. All things that we do. All very normal things. And James says of this brother... That he is both Lord and Christ. He is is Christ. We we think of like Jesus Christ. Oh, first name, last name. Not at all. Christ. He is the Messiah. The promised deliverer. He's the Savior. The the one that God has, has promised to come to deliver his people. That's who Jesus is. The Christ. And he is Lord And Lord is not something that would have been just kind of thrown around. No big deal. Like another word for sir. No. Lord referring to Israel's God. There is only one God. There is no one like this God. God overall worthy of honor and glory and praise and obedience. He's saying that's who Jesus is. Lord and Christ. That's who his brother is. Can you imagine being his brother, by the way? I mean, how how crazy? Like, James probably did all kinds of unkind things to Jesus. Did Jesus ever do anything unkind to James? No. But they grew up together, and here James introduces himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, testifying to the the deity of of Jesus Christ, that, that he is that God. Of all the things that James could open his letter with, all the things he might say, of all the ways that James could tell us about himself, this is all he wants readers to know. This is what he wants us to know. He is a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he comes with the authority of another. Listen up, because he comes with the wisdom of another. And he comes with the light of another. He is not the point. This letter is not about James. It's about the Lord. He is a pointer to the one that we must listen to. So this is who James is. Second second question, who is James writing to? We're going to spend a little bit less time here. Who is James writing to? Our next phrase tells us about the audience of James. He says, he writes, to the twelve tribes of the dispersion. The twelve tribes of, in the dispersion. Now, I think there, there are two levels that we should understand this phrase. In the first place, James writes to Jews. Jews being members of the twelve tribes. And these Jews are, are Jews who have had to flee Jerusalem. And so they are now spread out far from their home. We read in Acts 11.19 how there were many Jewish Christians who were scattered because of persecution. And so James, as, as really in many ways the head of the early church in Jerusalem, is writing to those who were once under his care, continuing to care for them, and writing a letter that's meant to be read far and wide. He's a pastor, and he has a pastor's heart. And so even though he cannot be with them all, he writes to instruct them on how to live in the craziness of a world that's against them. So that's the first level, simple level that we are to understand James's audience. And there's a second level that we should understand through this phrase. Now, if we've been immersed in the world of the Bible, then this phrase, the 12 tribes, should really open up to us so much of Israel's history. If we think back to... Genesis and God choosing a people for the display of his glory. We can go back to, to Abraham and the covenant God we made with Abraham, and then Abraham's son, Isaac. And then Isaac had a son named Jacob. And James actually gets his name from Jacob, ironically enough. That's just a fun fact for you. Uh, James is, the, is it's like the transliteration of the Hebrew name Jacob. Now, Jacob... If you remember, he had 12 sons. And these 12 sons eventually became what are known as the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is really what defined the people of God. They they were these 12 tribes. But the history of these people is not one of peace and unity and success. It's actually turmoil and strife and failure. And just as God's deliverance of Israel out of Egypt marked this people, so also did the collapse of their kingdoms and what became their exile. You see, Israel was was established and prospered under the rule of David and his son Solomon. But after Solomon's rule, Israel became divided. And you may recall how they they divided into a northern kingdom known as Israel and a southern kingdom known as Israel. Judah, And despite God's commands, and despite calls to repent from good kings like Josiah, and prophets like Elijah and Elisha, the two kingdoms, they fell. The northern kingdom was, was conquered by Assyria in 722 B.C., and, and the southern kingdom was conquered by Babylon in 586 B.C. These are things that happened in history. These two kingdoms fell, and do you know what happened? When when these kingdoms were conquered, the people were taken away. They were taken out of their land. They were dispersed throughout the world. They were people in exile. But God is a faithful God. And He keeps His promises through Jesus. Because this covenant was made. I want to actually go back to Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 11, God tells His people, To be careful to do all that he commands. Deuteronomy 11, verse 26, he says, See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. So we got a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, that's all you do. Obey and there's a blessing. And the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God but turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. And as we read the Old Testament, what do the people do? They turn away and go after other gods again and again. But God is faithful to his people. And even though one, one side of this covenant could not keep their covenant... God established, he sent a new Moses and he established a new covenant through the blood of Jesus. And God established his people as they now await their return from exile. And th- those people are, are the church today, the people of God. You see, we are all a people of the dispersion. We have been, we have been sent abroad, we've been dispersed, we are spread out. Peter talks about us as, as sojourners, as, stra- as travelers, as strangers, as strangers. And we are those who await our true home. And so James is writing to this people of God as they anticipate their true home. As they anticipate Jesus' return. As they anticipate that day when they will return from exile and be brought home to be with God. So that's who James is and that's who James is writing to. But now let's spend the rest of our time together considering what James writes. What is James writing about? This is our third third question. Now, I mentioned earlier how this book is a book of wisdom. James gives really practical knowledge for how to live today. And this makes James a book that is either really popular among Christians, oh great, this book just tells me what to do, or really unpopular among Christians, because oh man, this book just tells me what to do. But this is wisdom that we need today. Because the wisdom of James, it tells us that it's, it's not enough to know the right answers. We must live them out. That's James's burden in this letter. It's not enough to be hearers of the word only. We must be doers of the word. Not enough to be hearers only, but we must be doers. For James, the the basic sin for the religious is to be double-minded. It's hypocrisy. And James writes to encourage these people, his his readers, to be genuine in their faith, not half-hearted in their obedience, but instead walking in the goodness of God's ways, walking in wisdom. And as those who... Happen to be in church on a Sunday morning, gathered for corporate worship, this is a danger that we all face. We can sit here and think it's enough just to listen, just to hear these things, just to be among God's people. But what James reminds us of is that true faith walks in obedience, walks in righteousness. True faith is lived out. And James presents this wisdom to us in a series of what kind of seem like mini sermons. We might think of them today like reading a pastor's blog. It's kind of a, it's just like, here, here's a thought, and then the next week I come back and here's another thought. And in many ways, we're going to pick up on some similarities to, to other things that we are hearing and that we have heard. Now, Martin Luther, who didn't have the most favorable view of James, he described James's style as, as throwing things together chaotically. That's what he said James is doing. This description, although not the most charitable, is certainly similar to what we are going to encounter in Proverbs, where wisdom is given to us in what seems like random pictures and and statements and metaphors and contrasts, and we're going to enjoy Mr. Loftus sharing to us from Proverbs and and fitting those things together as as they come at us from all different angles. That's what it can seem like. So James is going to be similar to that in many ways. But Proverbs is not the only part of the Bible that is similar to James. I think this is very important for us to have in the back of our minds as we study James together. You see, James is writing in a world that had been shaped by the teaching of Jesus. And I don't mean the world broadly, but I mean his world specifically. It had been shaped by the teaching of Jesus. James was shaped by the teaching of Jesus. And when he saw the world, he saw the world through these lenses that he heard from Jesus, that he, he gained from listening to Jesus' teaching. It's likely that James was actually uh, the first or one of the first books that's written in the New Testament. So shortly after early, early 40s, not too long, after less than a decade after Jesus had died. And so as the church is established, it's obviously it's Jesus Christ that the church is being built upon. And it's his teaching that James and, and Peter and eventually Paul, they're, that they're imparting to the early church. So James is shaped by that world. So while, James, while Jesus is only mentioned twice in James, which is kind of surprising, we've already encountered one of them in James 1.1. 1, 1. Jesus is only mentioned one other time. Echoes of Jesus' teaching sound loud throughout James' James's writing. James uses rich imagery and compelling illustrations throughout his book in the style of the Sermon on the Mount. And as you read James, you can hear how Jesus' teaching has shaped the thoughts and imagination of James. And so James really is writing, I said he's writing to give us wisdom, he's really writing to give us Jesus' wisdom. He writes to help Christians apply Jesus' wisdom to the challenges that they encounter day in and day out. The place where life is lived. And while there are various challenges we're going to look at over the next several months, I want to briefly highlight three areas that encapsulate much of what James has to say. So we're just going to consider three. What is James writing about? Three things that he's writing about. First, James writes about the challenge of temptation. James writes about the challenge of temptation. James wants us to know that temptation comes. And temptation comes not from God, but from our sinful desires. And this temptation will lead to destruction. If you're there in James 1, look at verses 14 and 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So he writes to warn us of this danger, this challenge, much of like what we've heard in Proverbs. And the antidote to this challenge is perseverance. Perseverance, it's it's steadfastness, it's faith. It's recognizing that God is always faithful to his word and that he is the giver of every good gift, and that he always keeps his promises. So in the face of temptation, we persevere, because God is a God who is faithful. This is wisdom applied to temptation. The second area James writes about is the challenge of worldliness. The challenge of worldliness. And he speaks about this in different ways, but he especially speaks of it in relation to the challenge of favoritism or partiality. That is treating some better than others because of who they are or what they can do for you. And James addresses this challenge by pointing his readers back to how God has chosen the weak and the foolish in the eyes of the world to be the heirs of his kingdom. So we must care for those in need and live selfless lives. Lives that don't center on what we get, but on the grace that God has given. And through this, he he emphasizes the fact that our faith is not just a private matter, which you'll hear a lot of these days. But our faith is meant to be public. It's a public faith that's, that's meant to be lived out in our life together. We are made to use ourselves for others, living in peace and showing love and care to those the world might reject. So this is wisdom applied to worldliness and favoritism. So I wanted to share three areas. The third area of challenge that James addresses has to do with our words about what we say. And this is a theme that also plays a significant role in Proverbs. And in the teaching of Jesus as well, for it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. And James warns that just as a forest is set ablaze by a small fire, so the tongue is a fire. A world of unrighteousness. Our words, so often, they, they tear down, they sow dissension, they are, they're critical, they're unkind. And James says that all of our words belong not to us, but to the Lord. The words that God gives us are not given for our self-expression, but for God expression. For expressing God's character. For speaking God's words. This is wisdom applied to our words. There's just three areas that, that James is going to address as we make our way through this letter. And there's much more that's there, but there's a final thing that we have to deal with as we come to James. Something else that we have to consider. And that's this, as we study James, there's this big problem that James comes back to again and again. The problem is this, we so often don't walk in this wisdom. In, in James, there's 108 verses. Do you know how many commands there are in James? 59, 59 commands that we so often fail to measure up to. But James, rather than being a book that brings nothing but condemnation, is a book that is meant to drive us to the hope that we have in Jesus, to the hope of the gospel. You see, what James demonstrates is that we can't meet the standards of God's law. We don't control our tongues, and so we use our words to criticize others. We don't care for those in need. And instead, we show partiality and pursue worldliness. We don't always flee temptation. Instead, we we hang around it. Sometimes we run into it. But into our hopelessness in ourselves, James declares the hope that we have in Jesus. Look at James 2.13. James writes, For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. Again, James says in in chapter 5, verse 11, "...the Lord is compassionate and merciful." This is how we're called to live, and you can't do it. But the Lord is compassionate and merciful. You see, while James is certainly concerned about obedience, he knows that obedience must begin with repentance. Obedience must begin with repentance, This letter is meant to drive us to our need for Jesus. And this letter, it holds up God's royal law before us and says, yes, you are called to live this way, but you fall short of the glory of God. And when we fall short, we must respond by humbling ourselves. By humbling ourselves before the Lord and turning to Him for grace. And here is the good news for sinners and sufferers today. James 4.6 says this, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's what James is calling us to in this letter. Yes, we are called to walk in this wisdom. Yes, we are called to live this way, but you will fall short. But there is hope for you because he gives more grace. As we humble ourselves before the Lord, God gives the grace of of saving faith. And then gives us his spirit of wisdom to live as we are. That's what the the Christian life is. There is this statement that that God makes immediately of us when we are saved, that we are justified by faith. And then we are united to Christ. And, And what James is all about is all right, how then do we live now that we're united to Christ? How are we to walk? and the answer is to, to live as you already are. You, your life is found in Jesus, now walk in Him. Live in the goodness of His ways. As those who have been acted upon by God's grace, we live lives of righteousness and obedience and joy in every circumstance. So that's where we're going to be going as we make our way through James. It's a wonderful New Testament complement to where we are in Proverbs. And so Chris, in a couple of weeks, we'll be picking up from our first uh, text in James, or our next text in James, beginning in verse 2, and then a couple weeks later, Yu is going to be preaching and, and we're going to make our way. I don't know how long it'll take. Hopefully it's a good idea and it serves us, <laughs> and serves our church. I'm sure it'll be a good idea because we're looking to God and His Word together. Amen. Our God is the giver of every good gift, and so we hope in Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your goodness and kindness to us that even though we were dead in our sins, you have made us alive together with Christ. Once we were far off, once we were not a people, but you have made us a people by your grace, by your goodness. And we ask that you would help us to live as we are, as those who have been bought by the blood of Jesus, saved by grace. Lord, help us to walk in the goodness of that grace. And for those who are not, Saved who have not been redeemed. Lord, would you work repentance in their heart and would they turn to you in, in saving faith? Lord, salvation is, is your initiative. It's something only you can do, and so we ask that you would do this, especially with the young people in our midst. Lord, help us to walk according to your ways, to live in, the, in, in accord with, with your good order. All by your grace and for your glory. Amen.